0: Hey everyone, thank you so much for watching the WeVA podcast. I am incredibly honored and grateful to host these guests on the podcast. This topic will be absolutely epic. Firstly, we welcome back WeVA Chief Technology Officer and co founder, Eddie and Dillocker. Eddie and thank you so much for joining the podcast again. Thanks for having me. And of course, I am beyond excited to welcome Farshad Farabakshian, a Principal Solutions Architect at Amazon Web Services. Farshad, thank you so much for joining the podcast.
1: Hey, thank you so much. And by the way, my my title here is actually Gen AI Specialist, but a lot of times people think I'm a solutions architect, so it's all good. Nice
0: to meet you all. Sorry about that. Um, so, so could we uh, kick it off with like, um, I think maybe, you know, some for our newer listeners, could we maybe even start from the beginning, Eddie, and if you could kind of just, you know, what Weviate even just kind of like, you know, Weviate and the evolution of it that's led us to this point of, you know, talking about with AWS about running it on the cloud and kind of how far the journey has come.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, sure, sure. Let me try to keep this brief so I don't fill the entire podcast with this. And, and hopefully, uh, so, so on the, the self-hosting part, we can definitely dive uh, deeper into that later in the security, privacy, et cetera, aspects. Uh, but basically, VV8 is a vector database. Or for those of you who don't know what that is, it's essentially the long-term memory for for large language models. So for retrieval augmented generation, for example, definitely something that we're going to dive into, I guess. Uh, and VV8 is an open source vector database. Uh, you can use VV8 as a SaaS offering from, from us. So that's our VV8 cloud service. But you don't have to. If you don't want to, if you don't want to give your data away, you can self host it or you can help us help you host it in your environment, in your cloud tenant, in your VPC. And that's one of the USPs of VV8 um, because that allows you to to stay in control over all of your data. And then if you have that, you can query VV8 with vector search. So, dense embeddings, use dense embeddings for. for um, for the modern day retrieval, you can do the classic stuff. So BM25, you can mix it with hybrid, you get all kinds of other uh, database operations and all that at great scale. And uh, yeah, that was, that was my elevator pitch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's awesome. I think just, you know, this core of this HNSW vector index doing, you know, fast nearest neighbor search, is, you know, and then especially with this retrieval augmented generation, I think this has caused just a boom and, you know, the explosion of how often people are using these kind of things. So uh, Farshad, can you maybe tell us about kind of, you know, how you see the state of vector databases and retrieval augmented generation?
1: Yeah. I mean, at a high level, most customers that I talk to, they're like, oh, we just want to fine tune everything. Right. And, you know, fine tuning is great. It's, it's how you teach your model new skills, but it's not necessarily the best way to have it know knowledge. Um, And so vector databases is the most reliable way to do that. And so one of the most common use cases that we see is, hey, uh, here's a really simple one, right? Like we want our customer service agents to be way more efficient, right? And we want them to very quickly go through a relatively large knowledge base and retrieve precise information there's honestly not much reason to do fine tuning there unless you want your language model to sound different and how it interfaces with those customers. Mm -hmm. But if you want to retrieve specific info, like something in a data sheet, vector databases are very powerful that so pretty common architecture that we see come up is a strong LLM plus like a V8 vector database combined to offer that solution.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I, the chatbots thing, I, the whole like chat with your documents, you know, chat with your specific customer tickets, I think is just, you know, an incredible evangelist for all this. And yes, yeah, so I, th- I think we've kind of set the stage of what the technology is. You know, WeV8 Vector Database helps you retrieve relevant information to put in the context of LLMs. Let's get into the super exciting topic that, you know, we have our special guests the technical experts on, you know, what does it take to run this in the cloud? So... Couple things, right?
1: There's so many ways of doing this in the cloud right now, right? So I'm gonna go top to bottom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and let's kind of view it as the I, I view the LLM as kind of like the center that everything goes around. Um, if you want to work backwards from a proprietary proprietary LLM, like say from like an Anthropic um, or, uh, or a Cohere. Um, you generally are limited to however the cloud provider lets you access that. In the case of Amazon, we have a service called bedrock. Hmm. What bedrock is, is an API service that lets you do prompting and depending on the model provider, actually fine tuning as well. Right? So you have your API portion of that. What's interesting about bedrock is that we never share the data or the prompting to the model providers. So what's kind of interesting is that even though the model providers say that they will never use the data, our customers are like, yeah, but we still want someone in between, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why Bedrock is one of the value propositions, right? So you have your API call, goes to um, the, the model hosted on AWS, but you can't access the weights. It's all opaque. And then around that is when you have to start thinking about like, well, what I want to do on top of that, right? But in parallel to that whole thing is you have open source models. Llama 2 just came out. Right? I think it was last week, Llama 2 is doing really well. right? And it's also open source. With something like Llama 2, you can use services like Bedrock, um, you can also use services like Amazon SageMaker Jumpstart, which the difference between SageMaker Jumpstart and Bedrock is that it's not serverless. Users have to actually manage infrastructure as well. Um, but some people like that. Some people like having more knobs to control. Um, you can also fine tune Llama two, right? So now, once you start getting to some of these models that fine tuning is a part of it, some people like to have data engines that they incorporate RLHF into it, right? So here's a really simple example. A lot of folks that build diffusion models, the way they uh, get human feedback is they'll give you like four low resolution models, and then they pick. The the user picks the one that make want to make high resolution. And then now the model provider knows which one got the RLHF, right? Um, So then you have a data engine involved, right? And then this is all using managed services. We also have a ton of customers that want to pre-train their own models. Uh, A lot of folks tend to actually do this on bare metal EC2, right? So we'll get your A100s, look at your H100s. Um, We have our own proprietary chips called Traniums as well, uh, which support things like LLMs and diffusion models. Um, And they'll basically take like, no joke, like up to like 4,000 GPUs in one cluster to train one large job, (laughs) right? They get huge. So there's so many different ways to do it. And we're not even going to the inference side of it, but this is kind of like the model piece of it, Right. And then depending on how you're gonna be using that model, you're gonna be interfacing with a vector database, like from from Weaviate. And you're obviously gonna be using services like S3 to store your data. Maybe maybe you have a data lake involved as well. Um, The interesting thing that is a little bit different on training versus inference is that when you're doing training, all you really care about is like your time to train right? It's just like train the model as fast as possible. Uh, when it comes to inference, all of a sudden you care about how everything plays with each other, right? It's like, how tight does your vector database interface with your LLM? How tight does that eventually lead to your user experience, right? And that's probably just going to be dependent on use case, right? So like, for example, if you have a live customer agent that's having real-time conversations with customers, you're going to really care about latency at that point. Right. But if something is like, oh, we have a week to get this response, it's a com- completely different architecture. So now you start getting to use case dependent architectures that decide um, whether or not things are going to be good. And then once you start really caring about latency, model distillation becomes important as well. Right. You want to get the model to be as small as possible. Um, some people want to get these models to work on the edge. Um, you know, I-, I-, I can think of companies trying to build you know, uh, metaverse, omniverse, whatever whatever you want to call it, where latency becomes to so a point where I can see a world where you're going to have custom ML chips for inference to host these models locally, to just super reduce that latency for those use cases. But anyway, I just talked a lot, so I'll let you ask me any questions about that. But I just wanted to give you like an overview of like, what does this whole ecosystem look like from an infrastructure perspective?
0: Yeah. I'd say quickly with, yeah. I mean, first I thought that was a really great overview. I loved hearing all I mean, I think I first heard about like SageMaker with some of the stuff that Hugging Face was doing, like kind of for me personally, like, you know, coming out of my PhD in machine learning and starting to like learn about what the products are and how this really works in the real world. And yeah, hearing, I mean, the bedrock API, just so many interesting topics. I think, um, yeah, maybe it would be great to kind of just talk about that integration between LLMs and vector databases a little more, you know, just like um, maybe, Eddie, you could explain kind of how we design our generative modules and sort of how we think about that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Yes. Specifically, I want to, want to start with something on that part. You mentioned the training objective of of training this potentially mm. as fast as a, as you can train it. And I assume that the cycles in which you would retrain, they're relatively slow, right? Or relatively long cycles. So I'm curious sort of how does the the ability to change your retrieval algorithm, or not your algorithm, but your retrieval system on the fly, like, does that sort of be before, if you wouldn't do retrieval augmented generation, and you would potentially have to retrain your model every time it has to get new knowledge in. So, so how do these sort of, how do these cycles differ? And, and uh, when do I use what, basically?
1: Yeah, that's a super cool way to categorize it right because what we're starting to get into is like now we want to have a categorization and intuition for what do you want to train for and what do you want to use a knowledge base for um i was in a call with anthropic last week and i really like the way they think about it they, they split it into skill versus knowledge right so if you start to think about like what is a skill versus knowledge right let's Let's use the lawyer example. A skill that a lawyer has is understanding the law. The knowledge that they have is recalling different laws, Mm -hmm. right? So you're definitely going to have use cases where you want to build your model such that it builds an intuition for what it's doing, but you don't want to train it to understand every single law out there. It's pretty inefficient to do that. And it's probably not reliable, right? So... If you feel that, and if you if, if you categorize it into those two different buckets, my my thought process, my intuition tells me that you can do way less training, right? Because if you try to use training to be have something be knowledgeable, I mean, you're all you can do is like approach what you could do with a vector database. Even then, you could never be fully as reliable as a vector database. Right. So I would say if you're building an LLM, um, categorize it into those two things. Once you feel that your LLM has the right skill base to sound like what it needs to sound like, whether that's a customer service agent or a lawyer or programmer um, or, uh, you know, a musician, whatever that may be then it's time to start focusing on the vector database. And I'm willing to bet it's like a 90, 10 ratio difference, right? If you start to start using knowledge um, for vector databases, you could probably do way less training than you thought
2: you need to. Leftist differentiation, skill versus versus knowledge, this is great. So I'm, I'm thinking in my head when you brought up the, the lawyer, I'm thinking of the, the lawyer sitting in front of this shelf of books and the lawyer doesn't have to memorize every single book. They don't have to learn it by heart because they can they can just look it up. And essentially that's the retrieval part in in this, this awesome.
0: Yeah, and I, I really love just like the separation. I think like kind of like operationally, like if you need to keep fine-tuning the LLM, this is kind of one of the first things that drew me to retrieval augmented generation is you know, if every time you have new knowledge, you need to retrain the model and then rebuild the APIs and all that kind of stuff compared to this thing where, you know, the vector database is easier to update kind of like, well, how do you think about that kind of aspect of it, of how just the retrieval augmented setup, you know, it lets you update it just with way less overhead than kind of maybe a more traditional MLOps thinking of like, keep training, keep training.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would even take it a step further. I would be willing to bet that for a lot of use cases, if you use a vector database and you take advantage of a relatively large context window, you may never even have to do any fine tuning at all. Right? So the vector database is going to eat up a lot of the fine tuning that you traditionally think you would have to do in the past. Um, and we're seeing these models have very large context windows, right? Like today, Anthropics context window is a hundred thousand tokens, which means you could input an entire Harry Potter book as your prompt, right? So that in combination with a vector database, I start wondering, well, you're probably, you're still gonna need folks that do fine tuning, right? Skills, limited things, et cetera. Um, but I think you're gonna be surprised how much you can get away with with a vector database plus some good prompting.
2: That that kind of brings us the opportunity to put that uh, that training effort potentially into the vector database because the vector database also uses a retrieval mm. model that commonly like like with the um, the, the latest models from Cohere and, and OpenAI and all these these models I think sort of this has been put in in, in the shade a bit like people don't talk about fine tuning it as much anymore because they become sort of more general purpose etc. Um, but before that i think that was also a very very common topic about fine tuning those those models and i'm thinking if you have that that skill set in, in your team to to train a model like potentially put that focus instead of putting it on the the large language model just put it on the embedding model and and potentially get better domains for your uh domain there
0: yeah, like the um, you know, the search relevance, improving the search, all the knobs you can turn is so fascinating. One thing I really love Farshad, is you bring up that like long context windows is this idea of like searching across multiple information sources. Like, you know, you're you have the you're building like a customer support chatbot and so it might search through one index of like previous, you know, customer support threads as well as searching through say the WeVA blog posts or maybe the, you know, the code base if needed, but then like combining all these different information sources they call that like federated search. And yeah, I think it, it just this idea of how you combine uh, maybe like multiple indexes together for retrieval augmented generation. I think that's one of the like emerging frontiers of just, you know, packing that prompt with as much information as possible to complete the task.
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, you're right. I just actually learned about this recently. I saw some like, you know, block diagrams of how this is done on the LLM side. Um, the LLMs uh, look like they're on a trajectory to know which database to go to to do different things, right? So they're going to mm-hmm. like have an understanding of the question, and then have like a probability of what each database is likely to answer this question, and then go to that database, right? Which uh, is interesting because I think that's actually a little bit different architecture than before, right? Previously, a lot of folks would like just go directly to the data and then give that to the LLM to generate an answer, but now it's kind of the opposite. Now you have an LLM accepting the prompt, understanding it, deciding which database, which vector database, for example, to go to, and then generating a response, right? So that's really cool. Like we're starting to enter like, oh, this thing feels very intelligent, right? So I really (laughs) like that. Um, And I think in general, the analogy that I like to think about that we're gonna eventually go towards is like the human brain where, I have different parts of my brain to do different tasks right there's a part of my brain that does math which is probably not the part of my brain that feels emotions and it's probably not the part of my brain that recalls information right and so what you start to look like is you you're gonna probably want like something that has logic to know what part of the brain to go to or which which LM to go to and then this example we're talking about feels like it starts to approach that because while it's not different LLMs that it's going to, it's different knowledge parts of, let's call it the brain or the, you know, whatever that it starts to go to. But if you can have something know where to go for different types of questions, there's nothing preventing us from doing the same thing with LLMs in the long term, right? Hey, this is a math question, go to the math LLM. And the reason why that's important is because your brain would have to be so big if it didn't have efficient, smaller parts, you're going to do things. And to make that analogy with LLMs, it's like we can create much more efficient models over time and it create real products, right? There's going to be limitations of cost uh, and compute for specific use cases, unless we get these distilled smaller models to do very specific tasks, right? So I think it's really exciting to hear about this new architecture type.
2: This, this reminds me a bit of the question of whether a hybrid search is potentially zero shot or or few shot, because in, in hybrid search, in, in our case, we have one parameter that can be tuned, and that's essentially this alpha parameter that tells you give more weight to either the embedding based search or give more weight to the, the uh, a keyword based search. And if mm-hmm. the, the model has some reasoning, like potentially it could narrow this down already. It could say like, hey, this looks like a brand name. I'm probably going to want more of a, of a keyword match or something, or just like, say, like a product mm-hmm. description or something. So this could be a, a move in that direction as well to, to sort of give the model, as you say, more intelligence, more, more domain knowledge about the backends to just use them better and, and do better retrieval from them. Yeah, super exciting.
0: Yeah that's brilliant Eddie and I love that like um you know the LLM that knows how to search you know friends I've been talking to know that I don't shut up these days about the <laughs> gorilla large language models which are like you know you have instead of using a 200 billion parameter gbt 4 model or whatever to to make wevie queries you train a 7 billion parameter and then it's much more efficient to run and exactly what you were saying far shot I agree strongly with this that they are going to be kind of LLMs over all of the tools that, that the LLMs know how to, conf- how to control the APIs like Eddie explaining with taking a query and saying, should I wait BM 25 more heavily than vector search for this one, or adding the symbolic where filters to queries. And generally also, I think just, um, it, there's kind of two things to it, like large language model tool use, the tools have APIs. And so the language model needs to like, you know, behave exactly format the, you know, they call this like constrained output sampling or structured parsing where it's like the LM needs to format the request perfectly. So this kind of tuning, I think is perfect for that. And I think, yeah, I love the parts of my brain kind of analogy and how each one is smaller because if it's everything is a large model, then it's like kind of expensive to tune, but it it comes into vector databases too, because like in addition to having specialized LLMs to control each tool, you also have specialized vector indexes that contain different types of knowledge. Maybe Eddie and you could talk about, this is kind of something that topic that I always love thinking about is like, when to separate my data into multiple classes in and maybe also for new listeners, we could quickly do what a class is and and like when to separate it into different classes, how to think about adding filters versus uh, classes.
2: Yeah, the the original motivation in of of this sort of class-based schema in VV8 was to reflect the real world. So in an earlier version of VV8, we even had a distinction between is something a thing or an action that would sort of Hmm. describe either either things or action. That that's long gone because that led to more confusion in the API than it actually helped. But it kind of it's is where the history of where where the classes come from. Like they were meant to describe real world things. So if you have books, put your books in the book class. If you have um, i don't know chapters or something put them in the chapter class and that that kind of like i'm already sort of going to the the next use case of this which is chunking up stuff so um uh, for for these retrieval tasks very very common question or very common optimization problems basically how small like what what do i obtain a vector embedding for do i just mm. create one vector embedding for my entire book great if you're just trying to identify the right book if you're trying to search through your book that's not granular enough, do I obtain a vector embedding for every word in my book? Well, great if you're trying to find words, not very good if you're trying to find context because you're losing all the context. You're sort of going back to the original steps of, of vert to vec So um, they're most likely it's something like the paragraph or maybe if it's a long book and you're just trying to get a high level search and maybe a chapter in the book, something like that. And that is something that you can use the, the uh, VVA class model for to uh, retain that association, for example, between a class and a chapter, sorry, between a book and a chapter in that book. And that allows you to, for example, search through chapters, but then make a relation to the book and then maybe do something with that. So you could potentially sort of make these graph-like connections and even jump to the author that authored these books. And uh, as for your questions, like when should I use these links between objects of a class as opposed to a primitive uh, filter. This is mainly a performance optimization. So a primitive filter is cheaper to run. Maybe it has a, a bitmap index for uh, for primitive uh, um, filtering, basically, or for, for building these allow lists for filters. So if you want to get the most performance out of it, it's probably faster to, to do it sort of on the object itself. So essentially, like a denormalized schema in in um, sort of SQL slash so NoSQL terms. Um, and and if you use these links, it's maybe sometimes easier to reason about. So that's kind of the the, the trade off. Do you want something that's more easier that's easier to understand versus something that that's more performant?
0: Hmm. Yeah, amazing. And yeah, just understanding that kind of filtered HNSW like how filtered search works with the vector index and all that. I think you kind of quickly mentioned SQL with a different perspective, but like this. I think also kind of in our broader conversation of just LLMs that use tools and like selecting which class, book, book, chapter. And that's like one kind of LLM query routing task. But there's also kind of like, is this a vector search or is this an SQL search? Like if I say, what is the average age of my podcast listeners? Not that I have a database of how old do you you know, not that I have that, but like that would be a SQL kind of query, not a vector search query. So yeah, I think just all this kind of routing and, you know, it kind of, yeah, like this system architecture kind of thing of like, yeah, like, you know, I, I don't think it's quite the same topic as multi-tenancy, but it's like kind of like how you have all these different classes that you run in the cloud then. And like, you know, maybe we could talk a little more about like, you know, what does it take to, maybe we could actually kind of pivot the topics kind of broadly into just like, what kind of requirements are we seeing to be running vector indexes in, in the cloud?
1: Can I actually, is it okay if I ask a question? So yeah, it, it's related to the the question that you're asking too, Connor. I'm really curious, like, what has been, like, the one or two or three use cases that are you know, relatively novel and were really surprised to see how well it worked while using a vector database to get there? Like, like, wow, this works really well for this use case, right? Have there been some of those come up and what were those use cases? What was surprising about it? Was there anything interesting about the architecture to get there?
2: Yeah, I think initially, sort of, if we if we look at the pre LLM era, the main use because of course vector databases existed before before ChatGPT basically. So the the whole sort of using them as a building block for retrieval augmented generation is relatively new. So before that, I think it was mainly just search with contextual understanding. So these like very mm. small differences in in um, the input query, like. Using the word "not" as a negation, or something, So for example, searching for something that is uh, that has wings but is not an airplane, or something. Traditional keyword-based-based based matching it would match for airplane, and then it would also match for "not," which would sort of completely mess up the the, um, the 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 result quality. So I think this initially this was my my sort of for me one of those moments where like, okay, wow, there there is such potential in this. So so basically the the classical semantic search in a sense. Uh, and then post LLM or post uh, ChatGPT, um, yeah, it's gotten more into into all these kind of chatbot and 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 um, sort of the, the 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 there was this moment where we're like wow this is this is so much bigger than just semantic search. There there's all these all these systems that I, I think the first time someone talked to me about generative AI in general, it was. That was, that was way back, basically. For me, it was a bit hard to make the connection. Like, okay, yeah, that's that's an awesome field, but I don't think that's a related field. And at some point, it <laughs> was this: oh, actually, it is. And that was that was such a, um, I think that's not not an exact answer to your question of what are the great use cases, but the sort of in my personal journey, that that was one of the 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 things were like, oh wow, okay, there's just so much more to it. And uh, yeah, seeing the first sort of chatbot applications uh, that that users do uh um specifically sort of the chat with your documents kind of use case that's that's such a great one this giving this sort of more interactive kind of kind of a uh, uh, feel to it and then especially if this is like the the typical demo cases that you would see they're they're always like take something from Wikipedia and this like general purpose kind of, kind of general, uh, general knowledge kind of things. But then seeing our customers implement this on like super domain specific data, like in the financial industry or something that is so cool to me because it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of this, this very, these very boring documents where I imagine people spend so much time going through them like extracting all the information and now you can automate it and you can automate it with, Something as simple as a a single query that where you tell the large language model, hey, retrieve the right stuff and then do something with it. So that I think was was for me, uh, definitely one of the eye-opener cases. Maybe Connor, maybe you have a couple more.
0: Yeah, I think probably the biggest eye opener for me, I think was, you know, Bob was teaching me about, um, oh, it's called uh, like, I don't know, think it's called disruption theory. Sorry, Bob, I forgot the name of this thing. But it's like, a, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's like about, uh, you know, it's about like this virtuous cycle of how you kind of like have um, distribution and customer experience. And so kind of for me, just like that personalization component that's achieved by LLMs, that to me, I think it like just how I can, you know, go through the Twitter, you know, like I, like we all manage a ton of relationships, right? Like in the technology industry. And it's like, it's impossible for me to keep up with what all everyone is doing every week, for example. And so just having LLMs that can like summarize what, you know, like say Michael Goyne and Neural Magic have done this week and maybe like connect it with what I'm doing and like automatically generate these reports for me, just this kind of like, you know, the personal experience that you're able to give to potential users of your product, as well as kind of like partners and integrations by having the LLMs like combine knowledge sources. That's probably, that's probably my favorite one. Yeah. I- super cool.
1: And by the way, that was totally a selfish question on my part. I just wanted to expose myself to what y'all are seeing in this space. Um, and yeah, that's super exciting. And I think you mentioned magic Is
0: that, Did I hear that correctly. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a friend of mine who's, um, you know, the the, the company, he works at this company where they're working on LLM inference acceleration. It's just like an anecdote of saying, like, you know, they, they have, they post these new updates, like, you know, I don't know what their cadence of how many blog posts they do per week, but let's say they do like four per week. And let's say I have 20 such technology companies I want to keep up with. And now it's like 80 in a month. And, you know, I can't be expected to read all this. Like that kind of thing that I think that just helps us connect with each other also, like this kind of like social. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, I guess like one more thing I really enjoy just that I've seen is exactly what we were talking about earlier where we're talking about searching across multiple indexes. Uh, Erica also, she's been exploring like Llama Index has built these really great tools on top of WeV8 as the vector database. And then they're exploring like the sub question query engine. So. I ask a question like a Weaviate 8 feature, what is ref2vec? And then it routes the question to one index of blog posts, one index of podcast transcriptions, and then one index, which is the Weaviate code base. And I mean, the code base, we could talk about all sorts of things of how you can use the levers of Weaviate 8 to search through code bases. But just seeing that in action, the routing queries to different indexes, that is a mind blowing thing of retrieval augmented generation for me. Super cool. Awesome. So, okay, so I, I would love to kind of pivot our topic into a little more about, um, you know, we, we, Eddie, and I'd actually like to kick this off with kind of like, um, you know, I, one question I've always kind of found really interesting is like, so with AWS cloud services, you have like all these different machines. And I've seen some things like a, maybe like benchmarking, weviate with like different, you know, different particular machines. How do you think about that kind of, that kind of thing?
1: I assume you're talking about like instance types. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, I think what's helpful in this context is talk about like how do good how do how do customers go about doing this and and why do it this way. Um, the best way to do this is when you're trying to work backwards from like what's the best instance type for me to do what I'm trying to do with EV8? Um, It's just to do a proof of concept, right? So this is something I do pretty commonly with a lot of customers that I work with. We get an understanding of what they're trying to do, like what are some performance KPIs you're looking for, and we'll do some testing across instances, right? So there's so many different instances at AWS, right? Um, Whoever you're working with, whether you have an account manager or or, or like a specialist like myself, they'll be able to guide you on like what are the options to test maybe narrow down to like three or four different instance types and then do some testing um and and see where see where it goes right like sometimes you have you know are you focused on and when how do i say this your use case will determine what instance that you use, and there's really common patterns for specific use cases, right? You have all these building blocks from AWS, and you'd be surprised how often customers end up selecting the same exact instance for a given use case, right? And what that means is that there's a lot of tribe knowledge within AWS. Like when you're talking with someone and you're like, hey, this is my use case, it's like, we're already going to have an intuition for what's going to be AWS, but we don't want to tell you, we want you to get to that conclusion on your own, right? So we're going to set up an environment for you to do testing right? Because this is how the tech world works, right? Like we want you guys to make the best decision for you and we'll help guide you get there. But ultimately, you need to get that data for yourself, right? So that you know, versus taking my word for it, that you've built the best best solution for your company, right? So that's generally how we do it. Uh, Ask your account manager for credits along the way so you're not paying for it, right? So usually we can do that as well. There's obviously limitations, right? Like you can't have like a one year long POC, <laughs> for example. But yeah, like we're, we're more than happy to help. And that's generally a good protocol to do it. Data, data, data.
2: Great to hear this, this use case centric nature of it because this is exactly what we're, we're seeing as well. Like benchmarks are always lying in a sense that they're optimized for one specific thing, whatever you want to show in that that particular benchmark. And I think for, especially for, for users who are new to all of this, if all they have is a benchmark, they're just gonna pick whatever in that particular benchmark is on top, even if that's not at all what, they're, what they need. So for example, often benchmarks are optimized for, for um, either throughput or latency, which is kind of a similar thing. If you ignore that, that doesn't necessarily have to scale. Like often they're single-threaded and then you would have multi-threaded queries and then these kind of things. Um, but something that, that comes up way more often in, in the discussions that we have with our, our clients is actually cost, and none of these benchmarks optimize for for cost. So the question is like, what is your actual query load? What is your throughput? And then you see that that all these curves in these benchmarks, their their actual throughput is so much lower. And really, what we have to optimize for is, is cost. And then in, in VBA, that could, for example, mean a turn on compression, which is sort of another latency versus versus accuracy versus um, uh, versus a memory footprint, uh, uh, a trade off. Um, but also, of course, machine sizing. Like, do you really need the machine that has that allows you to to I don't know have two thousand as opposed to one thousand queries per second if you have one query per second? And then you get these these machines that are optimized maybe for for more memory relative to CPU, et cetera. And they're similar as 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 you said. Um, there are patterns. We also see these patterns. Like either you're you're uh, a very Serve on the on the throughput side, then on AWS, I think this is typically what we see is like M6i or R6i uh, machines, uh, or maybe you're more on the yeah on the, on the operating cost side. And then we see more uh, for for example uh, the, the the I think M7g or so sort of the, the the AWS uh, Graviton I think they're they're called. So um, long story short, I really like this. It's it's so like yes, of course we would like to to tell our users yeah just do it like that or compares like that. But really, if you want the best possible infrastructure setup, you just need to adjust it to your use case because every use case is, is different.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it's such a, like, honestly, a distraction to be like, oh, this is the best thing for this. And um, the, the the best customers that I've worked with, and when I say best customers, what I really mean is what are the customers where I'm like, wow, I would join that company. I really like the way they're doing things, right? So the customers that I'm considering best in that context, um, they don't follow benchmarks. Like they go down to what matters for me. And going back to like the AWS perspective, nine times out of 10, price performance is the name of the game. So not just performance, not just price, but price performance, which really means going down to your use case, right? Where am I getting the best bang for my buck? The only time price performance is like, been kind of deprioritized a little bit is if security gets involved, like a security standard where we definitely can't use it this way, even though it's the best price performance. So therefore we're willing to play pay more to do this other way. Right. But most of the time you're right. And it's, it's, it's price performance, right. Which was really use case dependent.
0: I guess kind of, for me, I'm curious about, um, you know, price performance and how you tune it. And then I'm like, I've always been curious, I hope I hope this doesn't go too into the kind of the details of like vector indexing and vector search, but this kind of like, you know, you can tune HNSW by adjusting these hyperparameters like EF, you know, max connections, basically like how densely connected that proximity graph is for how you route these queries. And, it, it, and you know, I, I think it's really interesting with, you know, Weaviate is now has like product quantization, which is reducing that memory by compressing the vectors. So maybe... Um, yeah, I hope this isn't too boring of a topic. Like for people who aren't super excited about kind of nerding out about how exactly you tune the the index for the different computers, but I'm sure that our listeners are, you know, are interested in that kind of conversation. Like, so how how do you think about uh, tuning? Maybe this is a question for Eddie, and who's really been you know in the weeds of this kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I'll try to make it exciting. <laughs> Um, so so in a, in a nutshell these are all parameters that you can tune for a specific trade off and typically that trade off is either index time query time or memory footprint so you mentioned max connections for example that's a parameter that literally leads to to so hnsw is a graph based index having more connections in the index means more memory because each connection is essentially stored as yeah, as a, a a number. You can think of it sort of like the outgoing edges to other nodes or just UN64s or something like that. So this is one of the knobs that you can turn that make the index bigger, but then because it's it's bigger, it's better connected, it's it's more sort of it's easier to go sort of this this uh small world example, I think that we've used in another uh in in previous podcasts. So if you're if you're trying to go from from a person in Europe to a person in, let's say, Asia, then you just need to know someone—I don't know—somewhere in the middle or so. Like they have these, like I think there's this theory that that with five or six or seven hops or so, you can basically get to any person in the world, and and that's that's uh, the nature of that that proximity graph. So the more connections you have, the easier it is to reach your goal with with fewer hops, and that's one of those those uh, turning knobs. And then. Um, especially in, in combination with product quantization that you just mentioned. So product quantization reduces the memory footprint of the vector embeddings, but not of the graph. So if you wanna get your, your total memory footprint down and the fact that you're using uh, product quantization could be an indicator that you've maybe already said on that trade off of query speed versus memory footprint and therefore operating costs, you're already leaning towards reducing operating costs. So then one way to potentially reduce it further is you could say in my index, I want to take that that same or do that same trade off and I want to trade off a bit of index memory footprint for higher latencies and I say like okay fewer connections which means that the, the graph footprint is smaller and then in turn maybe you have to search for it a bit longer so this would be the query parameter that you would have to to uh tune so this gives you um the, the effect on the infrastructure in your cloud is essentially like if you tune this well you could End up with the same use case either needing 16 gigabytes of memory or maybe 32 gigabytes of memory. And and um, of course they're not they're not identical. Like you would have, for example, higher query performance on the one with 32 gigs as opposed to with 16. But if you take that into consideration, then um, it's it's easier to to plan your infrastructure. So you have lots of ways. That said, VV8 has reasonable defaults. So um, there is a certain size where all of this tuning doesn't matter. And we try to pick defaults where you can just get started. And probably you'll know when you have to tune them because you'll either reach out to us or you'll, you'll start running into like memory limitations or you look at your AWS build and you think like, hey, maybe maybe I can get that memory footprint down a bit. Um, so this is for for mainly for the heavy production focus and large use cases. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good to know that you can tune these things if you want. To.
0: Yeah, and so I get kind of like this is kind of the question that sort of you know selfishly I was hoping to get answered in this podcast. Is I've always been you know from the, when I first was learning about Weavey and I learned about horizontal scalability, kind of you know, and I've I think I have a rough understanding of how you shard each of these kind of uh, classes and then how you scale out shards across machines. And so yeah, I'm just so curious to hear you know hear your perspectives on how uh, scaling out machines works in the cloud, particularly. You know, in this setting where you're running like a Weaviate cloud service in AWS, and so Weaveate has something like, you know, again, I, I understand this a little bit, so I'm trying to do my best to set up the question, but like, I know you kind of have things like Kubernetes where you have like, here, here's kind of like the code for how you would scale up to more machines. So yeah, could, maybe you guys could take the baton from here. Like, you know, how are you? How are you thinking about like? how we 8 can have a service that then within a aws would say okay we need you know 8 32 gigabyte ram that kind of thing
1: so I'll, i'm going to set up etn for this question i'll give like the high level answer and then i have a feeling you're going to know the very detailed answer how this actually works in, in your use cases that you've seen so at a high level AWS offers something called auto-scaling, which is basically like horizontal. Right? Vertical scaling is when you basically like increase the horsepower of your instance type, whether that's like bigger uh, GPU or more RAM, whatever. Horizontal is basically you add more instances to do whatever you're trying to do. And I, if, if I recall from my ASA days, this is like the Associate Solutions Architects course that you can take to learn more about AWS. You can do things like monitor like your CPU usage or your memory usage as triggers to know when to do some horizontal scaling. Um, So now I'm gonna pass the mic to Eden to talk about like, well, what things do you monitor do horizontal scaling? What are the things you look for? How do you actually architect it using orchestration? Like you touched on Kubernetes, right? Kubernetes is one way of containerizing and then doing scaling. Um, But yeah, I'd love to hear like, what are the specifics of what what you see customers do?
2: Yeah, Kubernetes and and VV8 are, Kind of intertwined in a way, but also they're not. So there, there's nothing in VVA that that would make it Kubernetes specific. But it's just one of the the operations decisions where we said like, you get so much for free with Kubernetes service discovery, scaling, rolling updates, like all these these kind of things that we said like, this is just how we want to run VVA. Um, technically you don't have to. You could just spin up manual EC two machines or so and just just uh, build it that way. Um, on the the sort of cluster architecture slash design part. Um, what's sometimes a bit difficult in vector search is that um, indexes are hard to split up once you once you have them. So sometimes you're actually forced to do vertical scaling, which you kind of want to avoid because, well, if you have replication, then you, at least you can do it with, with zero downtime. But it's way easier, of course, to do, do horizontal scaling. And one way that you can achieve that with VV8 is uh, the multi-tenancy feature, because the multi-tenancy feature schedules each tenant so each tenant is essentially like a lightweight chart in in v8 and each of those those tenants is scheduled on exactly one or if you spread it out on multiple nodes but that means the next time you add a tenant it can be scheduled on a new node. so if you would say your load is let's say you have a multi-tenancy application um someone can sign up for your let's say personalized chatbots like a user can sign up can upload documents and can chat with their documents and then you have 10,000 users, then each of those, your users, would be represented by one tenant in in VVA. And of course, these 10,000 users, like the moment you start using VV8, you would have some of them, but your goal is to sign up more of them. So ideally you add more users every day. And this is where it gets really interesting because at some point you're gonna run out of space and then you can very easily scale horizontally. You can just say, okay, add more nodes to the cluster and then all your new tenants that you, uh, sign up from from that point on they will be scheduled to those new notes and that gives you basically infinite linear scaling for the number of of notes uh, one thing that's that's not released yet but that's currently on our is then also to rebalance this and redistribute this so right now it's like once it's scheduled on a specific note it's fixed but that is an upcoming uh, feature as well to then give you more control over moving that data around and this is this is one of the, the common cases that we see where, where people basically use horizontal scaling to um to increase the the capacity of their their vector search cost. Yeah.
1: I mean that's that's perfect. You couldn't ask for a better way to scale than aligning your horizontal scaling with number of users, right? So that's that's perfect.
0: Yeah, that was super interesting. I I love that kind of yeah, the the way that you firstly separate, you know, horizontal scaling and tie that with multi-tenancy and then compare it to vertical scaling when you need it because of the vector index. I think you know, the 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 cloud service that orchestrates managing that for large apps, I, I find that all to be so fascinating. And kind of like one other topic I'm very curious about, it's um, kind of related to this idea of having like a product that manages cloud services is kind of what becomes different when you're running it like privately. Like, you know, we see this with like, you know, just as a random example, last night I attended a generative AI and healthcare meetup in Boston and they're all, you know, we need to run this privately. So like, what does that mean from the perspective of AWS? You know, AWS, I understand it's like public cloud. I can just kind of like go to EC2 and, and get running. How does Amazon think of, or AWS think about uh, private cloud? Um, when you say private cloud, um, I just want to make sure we're talking the same page here. Are you
1: referring to like someone owning like a data center within a colo? Or are you talking about like something where, hey, um, this needs to be, all happening within my VPC, within my own cloud, single tenancy for this one company. Everything does not leave this this thing, right? So are you, w- w- which one of those two are you referring to?
0: Um, I'm certainly interested in both. I think, um, I think, like, kind of as I mentioned, that, like, healthcare in Boston thing, the latter probably sounds like that case where you're, you know, really, like, nothing can leave here. And I, I think the other thing that's really an interesting part of this topic is kind of, like, having the LLM the large language model, as well as the vector database, both be in that kind of setup together, I I think. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about both of those. So um, let me me talk about the latter
1: first, because this is where I do talk to my customers about, and I'm certainly happy to share like a perspective of what I'm hearing about like colos and data centers. Um, So as far as AWS and keeping things extremely private, um, let's kind of walk through like a little mental model of what an architecture could look like. So when you're using AWS, you can use virtual... Uh, you can use VPCs, right. And within a VPC, like you're, you can be totally isolated from the rest of the the internet or even other AWS users. Right. Um, in that context, you can easily have your vector database be in there. Right. So everything's within your VPC, right. Whatever instance you want to host VV on, for example, can be there. And then the question becomes, well, okay, let's say that I want to, um, make sure that my prompting never leaves my VPC either. I don't want anyone to see my prompting, and I don't want anyone to see the responses from that prompting, right? Um, the, the the first level of like standard security that you can do is by using like a service called, like I mentioned earlier, Amazon Bedrock. With Bedrock, the way that it works is you effectively get uh, an API within your VPC, and it can be set up in a way where um, basically via private link, it connects to where the model is hosted, which means you can't see the weights of the model, but because it's private link and it's single tenancy, this is all things you can configure with AWS. uh, What that means is nobody else gets to access that stuff, right? So you can almost think of it as like you have your VPC bubble and it kind of extends out to another cluster somewhere, but it's all single tenancy. No one else gets to see it and it comes back to you. So in that scenario, everything's completely private and it's only for you. Uh, And we have customers that like, for example, have FedRAMP, security standards that they need to reach. Right. So um, I just talked to a customer this last week that's using a different service called Amazon SageMaker Jumpstart, where you can host models uh, in a similar fashion within your VPC. Um, And let's say, for example, you wanted to use Llama 2, right? With Jumpstart, you would provision some instances uh, for your SageMaker endpoints that your vector database can interface with. And that endpoint, you get to decide what type of instance that is, right? So for example, you can have Llama 2 hosted on A100s, you can have Llama 2 hosted on Inferentia 2, and you manage that. But what we do for you as a user is make sure that that instance is single tenancy and you're the only person touching that and no one else gets to see that. So you're now completely containing how you're interfacing with these LLMs, whether or not they're proprietary or open source, right? And this does come up quite a bit. And when I was making the comment earlier about like price performance and sometimes security, this is basically what I was alluding to, right? Like, so if, if for example, a customer, most nine times out of 10 customers like, I'm gonna, as long as everything uh, is done via bedrock and I know that it doesn't go to the model provider, I'm happy security wise. And then let's just focus on price performance. But like, what if a customer says, no, I need an additional layer of security, then maybe for some reason they have to use SageMaker Jumpstart because they, there's more knobs there, right? And at that point it goes back to price performance. And in the case, a lot of times what I see is like, a lot of times, you know, these, these models are pretty large and that means you have to use pretty beefy, pretty large instances to hold them, right? So I don't know how much um, off the top of my head, like how much memory Llama 2 takes for the 70 billion, but there's a good chance that you either have to run it on A100s or it 2, right? So if that's the case, like you're, these are beefy instances, they get expensive. So you, you better, and this is where you start to think about, well, maybe we should use the 13 billion or the 7 billion parameter version, right? So this gets in the whole price performance thing, right? Um, you're always working back for some use case. But basically everything work back, works backwards from, from a privacy perspective. Keep everything within the VPC. Nothing leaves. Uh, that seems to nine times out of 10 address security concerns from customers. Um, there are other use cases, so now let's go into like the whole Colo data center part of the question. There are customers that have data that they just cannot put in the cloud period. They cannot leave their own, their own data centers, right? So in those use cases, um, obviously I don't have as much purview into that given that I work at AWS, but in those use cases, these customers tend to buy like pre-made clusters from other companies, which may or may not be elastic. Um, That part I'm not sure about, Um, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, if you're you're a super large company that owns your own data center, you're probably going to find ways for it to be elastic. And I have no reason to suspect that they couldn't do horizontal scaling in that type of environment as well. But I think that most companies are able to use LLMs in the cloud with the exception of companies that have data that cannot leave their own on-premises data centers.
0: Yeah, no, that's really amazing. And firstly, thanks so much, because I, I hear that question a lot too, and now I feel like I have a good answer. Right? I think it's also interesting whether you need the Vector Database private or the LLM private or both and, and kind of maybe some nuances around that. And yeah, I think this kind of like single tenant, all that kind of thinking around how you do this thing yeah, all, all that's really interesting, uh, Eddie. And I'm curious if maybe you have some thoughts on like, um, yeah, that kind of like tenancy and the and the VPCs as Farshad describes.
2: Yeah, yeah. So with tenancy, because I talked about multi-tenancy before, but in a very different context. So, so it's kind of a, a, a difficult term because before multi-tenancy referred to our users having multiple users. In this case, now tenancy refers to sort of the isolation boundaries within AWS. So. Um, so, so let's say our chatbot application from before is an AWS customer. They don't want their data to be mixed up with competing chatbot application, <laughs> but still within sort of this single tenancy setup, they might have multiple users. So it's an, a, a, a term used in, in multiple settings. Nevertheless, the, the concepts are exactly the, the same for us. So data that shouldn't leave a certain realm. And this is this is something where um, the the sort again, those using the same term, the single-tenancy nature of your own VV8 deployment in your private VPC, in your cloud tenant, um, that that gives you the capability to stay completely in control. So I'm touched upon this uh, at the very beginning. Um, if you want just something fast, up and running, just use our VV8 cloud service. Or your VV8 cloud service, in, in that uh, um, definition of tenancy, is multi-tenant. So that means... Other customers that use the VVA cloud service run in the same AWS project, for example, on our cloud service. If you have these requirements for for strict isolation, you can run it in your own. Um, yeah, we say in your own VPC, and the VPC is in your cloud tenant, so it's basically w- whatever kind of boundaries you you want to define. And you can do this. Um, this is something that we're we're launching right now. As we're recording this, it's not public yet. Maybe it will be when we're when we're. Uh, depends on depends on how long it takes to edit this. Or we're just about to launch on the VV. Uh, not on the vv on the AWS Marketplace. We're launching VV8 on the AWS Marketplace, um, and it's a, a one-click deployment kind of setup where, where you can do exactly that. So if you have an existing VPC, you can deploy into that VPC. If you're starting from scratch, you can create a new VPC, and this is the the kind of setting where you can make sure that because your data that's contained in VV8 is then wherever VV8 is deployed. So exactly the same concepts. It can never be accessed by anyone else. It can never be mixed up with someone else. No one else has access. You are completely in control. If you tomorrow you decide you want to tear it down, you want to delete the disks, you are in in, in that kind of kind of control, which is great for for all kinds of yeah security compliance etc settings. Uh, the the downside basically is that it's it's potentially a bit more operations effort because now you're running VV8. And this is where our hybrid SaaS idea comes in. So with hybrid SaaS, basically the VV8 team helps you run this. So depending on how much data you're willing to give away, for example, one thing that you could opt into is saying like, hey, I want to push my metrics to the VV8 team. Then what we can do is monitor the metrics. So you can say like, hey, you're about to run out of XYZ, or we see a pattern here or there, or maybe if something happens, um then then and, and you're reaching out for for support to us and we can say like yeah okay we 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 have the kind of di- diagnostics uh tools that that we need or another option is like even if if you can't even share metrics uh then we can also in the in the sort of uh least common denominator would be we can jump on a zoom call and maybe this maybe uh, sort of figure out what's going on together so you get like various levels of of support contracts and support uh, uh settings in that that kind of hybrid saas setting where, um, yeah, the, the sort of underlying thing is you own your data and we help you with the operations part as much as you want.
1: Yeah, I could, I could see a lot of customers wanting to use the marketplace option you're talking about where it's within the customer's VPC. Um, I would love to do a blog with you where we show customers how easy it is to do and maybe like a use case that it works really well for. Um, cause I think a lot of customers would appreciate that. Awesome.
2: Let's do that.
0: Yeah. Amazing. I'm sure all listeners, of the podcast are going to be excited for that blog post as well. And, um, so kind of one, you know, Eddie, and you mentioned, you know, we on AWS marketplace. I think that's one of these big headlines of our podcast and like something we're super excited to announce. And, uh, Farshad, I'm just really curious, like, um, you know, like we you know, the startup and now being on the AWS marketplace, if you can maybe talk us through like, um, you know, the, what does it take to get your cloud service on the AWS marketplace? What does it take to get your cloud service on the AWS marketplace?
1: Um, Well, technically Eden knows more than me now since he's, since he's actually gone through it. Uh, But at a high level, um, AWS has so many different ways to partner with um, basically companies or startups. Um, And what we do is there's two methods, maybe more. One method is through AWS marketplace Um, marketplace basically makes it easier for you to consume um, partner products and services through AWS marketplace. And um, what's kind of interesting is that if you like have, you know, contracts with AWS marketplace can actually count towards that. Right? So in other words, there's incentive for companies to go out there and to use marketplace to consume things. Um, rather than going directly to, for example, wev right? So in other words, there's incentive for me to use, consume, me to consume wev through AWS Marketplace and it go directly to them, right? And it makes things easier for billing reasons, right? You go through one place to do everything. Um, and the, the process for doing it is basically you apply. Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, you can also in parallel, be a part of the AWS partner network if you choose to. And that has two categories, one is consulting and one is a technology partner. Um, you can think of consulting as like, hey, you can hire our developers to help you build whatever, whether it's infrastructure or app level, And um, we can do that. And then at the technology level, it's basically like SaaS things, right? So we, be, for example, be a technology partner and be on AWS Marketplace. Um, it's not necessarily a difficult process, but there is like a process of going through like architecture reviews, making sure things are set up and meeting standards with AWS um, and the most important thing I would say is like if you're a company thinking about APN or marketplace, um, I've I've never I'm going to speak anecdotally here, right? I have to be careful here. Um, it's not a you do this and you get additional revenue. It's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is this thing uh, you've already got a fire. You've got, you've kindled your fire. It's going, and this thing is fuel. It will scale you. It will add much more opportunities to your existing opportunities right and the way a lot of enterprises think about this is um you make it frictionless for me to consume your SaaS product you're making it frictionless right so if if no one's ever heard of you before it's going to be very difficult for marketplace to magically get you new customers but if you already have a presence in the world an enterprise can say oh and you're in marketplace so this is going to be easy for me to consume you that's how you should be thinking about it right so It does work, but there's like a level expectation of how it works that's important to consider. We have a lot of companies that make a ton of money off of Marketplace and AP, and it's very successful for them. But what I don't wanna do is mislead someone and say, you do this and you magically get revenue through AWS, right?
2: Yeah, that perfectly matches our experience. I think the, the motivation to onboard into the Marketplace was because we had customers asking like, hey, I would love to buy this through the Marketplace, but you're not on it. Can you get on the Marketplace? Yeah, exactly.
0: Awesome. Well, Eddie and Farshad, I I love this podcast. I think it was such a great tour, you know, beginning with kind of trends and vector databases and retrieval augments generation, stepping into this, you know, machine provisioning, horizontal scalability, multi tenancy. you know, all of these cloud stuff. I just, it's so amazing. So both, thank you so much for joining the podcast and sharing this knowledge. I learned so much. Thank you both. Super fun.
2: Yeah, same here. Thank you.